Good morning. Welcome. I'm excited to be here. Excited to be back with you all. We miss you very much. Uh, we had a fruitful time uh, with my sister. But we're excited to be with you. Again, we, we did miss you all. Um, I missed Mark, though, especially. I'm excited to be back and, and back in the book of Mark. Um, I'm studying there. Um, we got a really good one this morning um, that, I've been, that I've been looking forward to. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 45 through 56. Mark 6, 45 through 56. Um, let, me, let me try and explain something that you may be kind of wondering um, as we start to, to work through this, this passage. Um, we are a, a slow and stubborn and obstinate people, right? And I don't mean we Woodside we, I mean we universal we, like everyone, humanity we. We are slow and stubborn. We, we are so turned in on ourselves. We are so self-focused, so concerned with our own personal happiness and, and comfort and goals that we often miss very important, simple things, right? We are slow, stubborn, and resistant to change. I, I, I honestly, I'm probably the best example of this that I can think of. Um, just go ask Melissa after the service. Sometimes she has to tell me four and five and six times to do something before I will actually do it. She'll, she'll go to bed, she'll tell me to take out the trash because it's trash day the next morning, and then she'll be rightly frustrated when she wakes up and I haven't taken out the trash. Um, because I'm, I'm stubborn, and I'm, and I'm slow to hear and understand and to listen. And Melissa and I, listen, we're just, we're just a dangerous combination of stubbornness, all right? Just, we have, you take my stubbornness, you combine it with her stubbornness, and it produces like this perfect storm of stubbornness that is Emma Kate, right? I, I, I love her dearly, she's, uh, she's beautiful, she's the most fun person in the world, I love her more than life, but she is extremely stubborn, because we are all extremely stubborn, right? It is our nature to resist change and to ignore good advice. We are the opposite of what James says in chapter 1, verses 19. We are slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to anger, right? Because sometimes we simply do not get it. So I, want to, I say all that to kind of set the stage um, for what our passage this morning is about. We're now finishing up the sixth chapter of Mark, right? We've done 19 sermons, and all of these stories, quite honestly, have basically been about the same thing. Right? They're all about the identity of this person, Jesus. Right? Who he really is and what he has really come here to do. And here, once again, we have another passage this morning that is about Jesus' revelation of himself to his disciples. Right? You might be thinking, we've covered this, right? Like, why talk about who Jesus is again? We all know this, right? But we talk about it again because we are a stubborn and slow and obstinate People, right? We're slow to get it. And as we're going to see here, the disciples are very slow to get it. These guys have, have personally witnessed everything that we have talked about so far and so much more, right? We just have a small taste of everything that Jesus did in those three years. They had seen all of it and they still don't get it, right? They still don't get who Jesus is and the implications that that would have for their lives. And many of you do not either because if you got it, it would wildly change things. Again, this whole Jesus thing, this is not just kind of this nice little add-on, right? This isn't an hour we spend on Sunday mornings just because it kind of makes us feel good, right? This is our life, okay? Jesus is either everything to you or he is nothing to you. He is either Lord or you are Lord. He, he either radically changes you and reorients your entire life or you haven't really met him. So God graciously, he, he goes to 
great lengths to make sure that we get it. He is patient with us. He repeats himself over and over again because we are so slow to understand. Jesus is constantly revealing himself again to his disciples because they take so long to get it. And he does the same thing with us. He is, he is like a patient parent with a stubborn child. Now, I don't think I'm anything, I'm not a particularly exceptional parent, but if I did not do this with Emma, I would be an absolutely terrible parent, because that is part of the key um, thing that I am to do as a parent. My job is to, to teach her and to train her and to raise her up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, as Ephesians 6.4 says. And now sometimes, as a parent, that involves me feeling like a broken record, right? No, Emma, you can't watch TV all day long. No, Emma, you can't eat a bag of candy for lunch. No, Emma, you, you can't climb down and play in the barricade, right? All of these things that she thinks are good ideas, I have to patiently, repeatedly instruct her otherwise. Because she is like me. She's like her father. She is slow and stubborn. But I have to to do this for her because I love her and for her own good, right? The worst thing that you can do for your kid, by the way, quick parenting lesson that I learned from someone else. I, I, I don't know anything about parenting. I'm still being taught. But the worst thing that you can do for your kid is to give them everything that they want, right? The worst thing that you can do for your child is to never tell your child no and to never discipline your child. But I understand it's so tempting because it is so much easier. But no, we've got to put in the hard work. We have got to be patient in instructing them over and over again and revealing to them over and over again how they are to act in a way that honors God and in a way that will help them to grow into mature, responsible adults. All right, listen, your children aren't just good, sweet little innocent angels. All right? they, are, they are sinners just like the rest of us and they need our patience and our instruction and our discipline. Right? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this story. Right? He is being very patient with his little children, with his stubborn, slow disciples. And he is teaching them once again who he is. Right? So in this is one little story, we're going to look at three main things. I want to see, we're going to see that Jesus sends, we're going to see then that Jesus comes, and then we're going to see that Jesus reveals. Sends, comes, and reveals. And all that's going to come from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. So, so follow along in your Bibles or in the bulletin as I read. This is God's Word. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when, he saw them, when, he, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to, on the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it 
were made well. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we confess that we are a sinful and, and stubborn and slow to learn people. But Father, right now I pray that you would overcome those barriers. Father, we ask that your spirit would work in this place and that you would illuminate this text, that you would apply these truths to our heart. Father, nothing I can say in here can, can change a person's heart, but you can. And so we ask that you would work and we ask that you would glorify your name through this and honor your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Remember last time, two weeks ago, we, we looked at the, the compassion and the provision of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000, right? Well, our passage this morning directly follows the feeding of the 5,000, and it seems to follow with some urgency. Look at the first verse, verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Why immediately? Like, what, what is the rush? Well, we're not told specifically in Mark. But it seems that John chapter 6 gives us an idea, right? John 6 records the same feeding of the 5,000 that Mark 6 records. But John adds and includes a little bit of detail that, that Mark leaves out, right? So right after Jesus, he's multiplied the loaves and the fishes, right? He's just handed it all out over and over and over again. The people have eaten their fill. And then in John 6, verses 14 and 15, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done... They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So remember, all right, the Jews 2,000 years ago, they were anxiously awaiting this, this Messiah, this long-promised deliverer in the Old Testament. He, would, he was going to come and he was going to save his people and he was going to establish God's kingdom on earth. The only thing is that they thought of this Messiah in primarily kind of nationalistic or militaristic terms. Right? Remember, they're, they're under the rule and the impression of uh, oppression of the Roman Empire. So they, they desperately desired a Messiah who, who would come, wipe out the Romans, lead the Jews in these great military victories, and then once again establish this great kingdom of Israel. So, in the feeding of the 5,000, right, the crowds, we're talking, remember, 5,000 men plus however many women and children. So we're talking 10 to 15,000 people. Right? They're, they're starting to pick up on the fact that this Jesus might just be this long-awaited Messiah. So the crowd apparently works itself into a frenzy. Right? The, the fanaticism is spreading and there's this, this apparent push to, to seize Jesus, to take him by force to Jerusalem and to try to force him to kind of establish his kingdom and to lead them to, to victory over Rome. Well, as we've already seen, and we're about to see again, the disciples still don't quite get this whole Jesus thing, right? They, they didn't understand yet. So it is likely then that they too could have been easily caught up in these misguided messianic expectations. So Jesus takes them, he shoves them into a boat, he kicks them out in the middle of the sea and says, guys, you get out of here. I'm going to take care of this. He, he dismisses the crowd. He, he sneaks away and he goes up on a mountain to pray. Now the people were right that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember, the very first book, uh, the very first verse of this whole book says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, remember, our word Christ, it's not Jesus' last name. It's a title, right? It, it means Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So that verse basically says the good news of Jesus, who is the Messiah and who is the Son of God, right? That's the case that Mark is making 
in this book. So Jesus is the Messiah, but he is not the type of Messiah that the people were expecting. They expected kind of conquering king, military, great, strong leader, Messiah. Jesus was not that. And that's why we see him often. He, he's keeping his identity a secret throughout Mark. He's often sneaking away from the crowds. That's why he sends his disciples away here. That's why he, he silences the demons when they try to reveal who he is. Right? He gets rid of these disciples so they don't get caught up in this misunderstanding. And what he's about to do is he's going to take this opportunity to correct that misunderstanding and reveal himself to them and what it really means for him to be the Messiah. So, so once Jesus gets away, he's gotten rid of the disciples, he's by himself, he goes to pray. And this is noteworthy because there are only three times in the entire book of Mark that we're told that Jesus prayed. Now listen, we know that Jesus prayed a lot more than three times, but it's only written down for us three times. Right? And Mark seems to be doing something with these. He, on all three occasions, it's nighttime. All three occasions, he separated from his disciples. And on all three occasions, something significant is happening. Right? The first one is in Mark 1.35, and it's at the outset, the very beginning of his ministry, of his preaching and his healing and casting out demon ministry throughout Galilee. So he, he prays to, to set off and mark this first great ministry. The third is in Mark 14, the famous one, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, right before Jesus is about to be betrayed and arrested and crucified, we see Jesus in the garden just pouring himself out in prayer to God. And then the second one here is then in our, our story, right before Jesus walks on the water. So it seems that, that our author records Jesus praying to mark significant points in Jesus' ministry. Right? The first and the third are obvious. Right? We're marking the beginning of his ministry. The third one is marking the, the climax of his ministry, the most important part, the, the cross. But what is significant about this one? What's significant about this time of prayer? Why now? Because again, when we think of Jesus walking on water, as we're about to see, we generally think of it as a, a pretty cool magic trick. Like, well, that was, that was pretty neat, Jesus. Good job walking on the water. But well, what really was the point of that? But it is so much more than that. There is, there is so much going on here in this short, these short few verses. Our passage and this miracle are about the intensification of Jesus' revelation of himself. Right? Who he really is and what he has come to do. So starting with this miracle and then continuing on through the next few chapters, culminating in, in the transfiguration. Remember, the transfiguration, Jesus goes up on a mountain and just for a brief moment, he just kind of reveals his glory and his greatness. He gives them just a, a taste of who he is. Right? Jesus is now going to great lengths to show himself to his Disciples, And he does it over and over and over again so that they will get it and so that they will record it and write it down so that then we can get it and understand it. Because guys, listen, if you don't get this, right, and many of you don't, if, if you don't get who Jesus actually is and what he actually did and the implications that that then has for your life, right, then, then you don't get anything. So this is really important. So, so how does Jesus, walking on top of a little bit of choppy water, how does that reveal to us who he really is? And now, as I've been making the case before, the Old Testament is key here. 
Right? That's why we're, we're working through the Old Testament in Sunday school. That's why we're preaching through the Old Testament in Sunday evenings. Because in the American church today, especially in some fundamentalist circles, we have just largely ignored and completely misunderstood the Old Testament to our great harm. Right? And this, this general kind of ignorance of all things Old Testament causes us to miss the, the significance of what is going on in our story this morning. So let me back up for a second. Mark records that Jesus went off to pray, so we know that that signifies something significant about to come, which we're going to get to, but first, the story turns to the disciples. Look at verses 47 through 48. Right? It tells us he, he kicks them out to sea, the disciples are out in a boat, and things just simply are not going well. Right? I remember a, a few chapters ago, they, they encountered like this, this hurricane, like life threatening boat about to go under, they fear for their lives, right? This isn't quite that intense, but it's, it's a serious storm that, that, that is just preventing them from getting anywhere. They've been rowing for hours with little progress. Have you ever tried to sit at a rowing machine and row for a while? It's, it's just absolutely exhausting. So they're doing it here in the middle of a hurricane, and they're getting nowhere. And listen, they've had a very long day. Remember, they just got done with a six-month mission trip. They come right back. Jesus is like, all right, guys, I'm going to give you a little break. We're going to go sneak off. But then, these, you know, the crowds kind of show up. They get in the way. So they're stuck all day ministering to the crowds until late in the night. And then Jesus shoves them in a boat and tells them to row across the lake, right? And then the storm pops up, and they can't get anywhere. So these guys are just exhausted, right? All they want to do is sleep. It's 3 in the morning. Uh, it's the fourth watch of the night, uh, the story tells us. That means three in the morning. So apparently Jesus kind of operates on a schedule similarly to, to than I do, right? He, he works late into the night. Uh, that's kind of how he works. It's, it's really late. They're tired, and, and they're frustrated that they're in the middle of this storm. But why? Here's an important question. Why are they in this situation? Why are they in the middle of this storm? And this is, this is our first point. Notice this. So our first point is that Jesus sins. Right, when we think of Jesus sending, well, what do we usually think of? Well, we think of like the Great Commission. We think of Jesus sending his people out on mission. And that's right, and that, that's good. We should think of that. But that's, that's not all Jesus sends. That's not the only way that Jesus sends. So when we think of storms, right, and storms in our life, things we're going through, what do we think of? We generally think of disobedience, right? We, we look at the Jonah story, for example, right? Jonah disobeys God, right? He finds himself in the middle of the storm, but it is precisely because of his sin and disobedience, right? This is how we generally think of the storms in our lives. This hardship or this difficulty or this suffering must be the result of my sin or my disobedience. This, this must be something that is happening to me because of something that I did or someone close to me did, but that's not the case here with the disciples. Look at this. They, they find themselves in trouble precisely because they obeyed Jesus. Right? Jesus specifically sends them directly into the storm. Their obedience was rewarded with trial. And this is how it often goes with the Christian life. You start coming to church, you start giving regularly, you start reading the word, we start praying that God would kind of reveal himself to you and sanctify you and, and draw closer to you. You start doing all of these good things, but all of a sudden these, these trials and these, these difficulties start popping up. Right? And our first thought is, is why? Right? What is going on here? God. Here, here I am doing all of these good things. I'm, I'm getting my life 
in order. Um, I'm doing better, but things just don't seem to be getting any easier. Have you ever experienced that, right? I, I know that I absolutely have. So we should, we should let our passage this morning inform and encourage us. We are never promised that things are going to magically get easier for us once we become Christians. All right, in fact, if you just go read the Bible, and if you just go look back over the course of Christian history, it actually seems to be the opposite case, right? Sometimes things get more difficult. Sometimes God sends us straight into a trial like he does to the disciples here, and when he does, it is always for a reason. Right? God never acts randomly. God never acts arbitrarily. He is so sovereign. He is so in control of even the tiniest details of life that, that, that he uses every little thing to accomplish his purposes. I always have to come back to Romans 8.28. Always. Which says that God works all things together for good for those he has called according to his purpose. All things. And those all things include our suffering and difficulty and trial. God can take even these things and work them out together for our own good. So sometimes God specifically uses situations like these to, to get our attention, to, to fix something that needs fixing, or to, to reveal something about himself that we have been missing. C.S. Lewis, I quote him a lot. He famously said, and he wrote this great little book called The Problem of Pain. Right? His wife died early, and he's just wrestling and struggling through this, and why? Like what, what is going on here, God? And he writes this famously in the book. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Well, so here we have Jesus shouting to his disciples. Here Jesus is going to great lengths to overcome their stubbornness and their sinfulness and their hard hearts. Their, their failure, even after everything that they have seen and witnessed. He, he is trying to help them comprehend what it is that he is doing. But they just keep missing it. So he sends them specifically right into the middle of the storm. But again, he doesn't do it for fun. He, he doesn't do it just to torment them. God always acts with purpose. Right? Whatever, whatever the, the great difficulty it is in your life that you are facing, right? God is doing something with that. God is saying something to you through it. He is, he is shouting at you, maybe. He is trying to get your attention and to rouse you from your slumber. Have you ever been going through something difficult like this? You know, you're suffering through something, you're confused, you don't know why. And someone with, you know, with good intentions usually, they come to you and they, they say something like, listen, you know, it's all right. God, God never gives us more than we can handle. Right? Has anyone ever said that to you? Listen, don't say that. All right, listen. That is just not helpful. And it is simply not biblical. Because God quite frequently gives us more than we can handle. Right, just go read the Psalms. Just go read Psalm 77. Psalm 77 says, When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. I am so troubled that I cannot even speak. Will the Lord spurn me forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His compassion? And there are just many Psalms like this. There are many examples throughout Scripture of such desperation and Despair. God quite frequently gives us more than we can handle. 
Right? My family has been struggling through something that is significantly more than we can handle for almost two years. I've watched a number of close Christian friends be given something by God that they very much could not handle. In our story this morning, God gives the disciples something that they clearly cannot handle. And I think he, he gives us these things precisely because we cannot handle them or the pain and the anxiety that they bring. Listen to Paul's words about this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, um, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. God very much gives Paul and his companions here more than they can handle. And they're just, they're sure that they're dead. They're, they're sure that it is over. Why? And that's our next point. That's what we're getting to. And that's what Paul writes there at the end of verse 9. He says, we were sure death was coming. God had given us a death sentence. And then he writes, he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Right? God specifically sends us into the middle of storms, but he does so for a purpose, to, to accomplish a greater good for us, to teach us that we cannot handle it, and so that we then learn to know that he can handle it, and that we have to rely on him in those situations. Right? And that's what we see here. Jesus sends the disciples into the storm, but thankfully the story does not end there. Look at the second part of verse 48. He sends them into the storm, but then he comes to them in that storm. Jesus sends and he comes. And, and man, this is, just, this is one of the great truths of Scripture. Right? This is one of the places where Christianity elevates itself above every other religion and worldview. Because at the center of the Christian faith is a God who comes. And you will not find this anywhere else. Right? At the very heart of this faith is the glorious truth that God comes. Which in theology is, is referred to as the incarnation. Right? Incarnate literally means to, to, to take on or, or to put on flesh. Right? Sometimes we describe people as evil incarnate. Right? Hitler was evil incarnate. Like we use it as, as a metaphor. It means that he was so evil, he was evil clothed in a body. Evil clothed in flesh. Well, the great truth of Christianity is that Jesus is God incarnate. He is God wrapped in flesh. So the incarnation is the historical event recorded in the Gospels, particularly in John 1, where, where the Word, right, the Son, the, the second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh and comes to earth. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, come from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the great truth of Christianity is that God Himself has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And He has come to us in the midst of our darkness and difficulty and suffering and sin and just abject helplessness. Jesus comes. And I wish we could just camp and stay here, but, but we don't have time. But, but at least listen to a few verses about this. Just write these down and go back over these later. John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life. 
Mark 2.17 says, I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. John 12.46, I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul writes, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Luke 19.10 says that Jesus comes to seek after and to save the lost. Listen, that's us. We're the sinners. We're the lost. We don't seek after him. We do not save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. But the, but the grace of God is that he seeks after us and he saves us. He comes to us in the midst of our great need. And he comes here to the disciples in the midst of their great need. Jesus comes ultimately as Savior to take care of the, the one major problem that really matters, right? Our, our sin and our resulting separation from God, right? That, that should be our focus. That is what we delight in primarily. But it, it is that salvation, it is that freeing us from the penalty of sin that is so important because it is through that that God saves us and changes us and, and, and sanctifies us. But that's not all that Jesus does, right? He does even more than that. As we see in our passage this morning, Jesus also comes to our aid in the midst of the difficulties and the trials of life. He, he comes out here to his disciples who are helpless in the middle of this storm. Yes, Jesus is our great Savior, but he is also Emmanuel, which simply means God with us. Jesus never once promises to spare us from storms, right? Because as we've seen, he often is the one that sends us right into them, right? He doesn't promise to spare us from storms, but he does promise to always be with us through those storms. I love Isaiah 43. Listen to, listen to a few verses from Isaiah 43. It says, fear not, God is speaking. He says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Fear not, for I am with you. That's Emmanuel. That's Jesus. God with us. Jesus comes to the disciples here in the storm. He is with them as they pass through the water, as Isaiah 43 says. And the second part of that verse, the, the flame shall not consume you, is reminiscent of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We just sung this in How Firm a Foundation, right? And I love this. We didn't plan this, right? Joanna didn't know that I was going to talk about this passage. She, she picked that song, and I, and I love when things come together like that. Because do you remember that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're, they're in Babylon, right? You have, you have King Nebuchadnezzar, and he, he comes and basically commands everyone to bow down to their gods. Well, they refuse. They, they're the ones that they stand up. They don't do it. So he threatens to, to throw them in his great fiery furnace. He says, I'm going to kill you. And their, their response to him is wonderful. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. All right, off to a bad start, by the way. You always answer a king, especially in this time. You, you never, like, this is, that's enough right there for the death sentence. You answer a king when the king asks you in this time. They said, we, we do not need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, by the way, if he doesn't do it, we, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
They say, listen, we know that he can do it, and he, and he might do it. And even if he doesn't, we don't care, because he's still God, and we're still going to listen to him. So Nebuchadnezzar's mad, he takes them, he throws them into the fire, but what happens, right? They, they look in, and they see them walking around unharmed by the flames, as Isaiah 43 says. But what else do they see, right? They see not three people in there walking around, but they see four men in there walking around. And it says that one of them looked like a son of of God, right? God comes to them and is with them in the midst of their great trial. And God promises to be with us in ours as well. He doesn't promise to deliver us from everything, right? Our prayer must be their prayer, right? God can deliver us, but even if he does not, he is still God and I still will trust him, right? Jesus sends us into the storms, but then he also comes to us in those storms. And as we're about to see in our third point, one of the primary reasons that he sends, to us, sends us there and comes to us into those storms is to reveal himself to us. Jesus sends them, he comes to them, and then he reveals himself to them. That, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God in the flesh. Now sadly, we, we don't have the time to just get into the detail um, that we should here to, to do this passage justice. But let me just kind of run through this. In these few short verses, in this one little story, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples in four different ways. And again, we, we often just pass right over this. We often miss this because we don't know our Old Testaments. But, but what Jesus is doing here is significant. So first, look, he, he walks on the water. And again, this isn't just some cool trick for the fun of it. Hey guys, look what I can do. Here's this cool magic trick. No, Jesus' actions, he always acts intentionally. His actions always reveal to us something about him. So what does walking on water, what is this miracle, this, this thing that no one else can do, what does that reveal to us about Jesus? Well, as we've seen multiple times already, Jesus is specifically doing something here that only God can do. Right? And Jesus keeps doing this throughout the book to make his case. Right? Jesus forgives sins. Right? The Jews knew that only God can forgive sins. We've seen Jesus bring a dead girl back from the grave to life. Only God can do that. We've seen his mastery over the forces of nature and his mastery and authority over the spiritual world. And here again in our story, Jesus is acting out things that the Old Testament tells us that only God can do. Right? Jesus walking on the water is another implicit, symbolic claim that he is God himself. Only God can walk on water. And we see that in a number of different places throughout the Old Testament. Job 9.8 says that God, only God stretches out the heavens, and only God can trample on the waves of the sea. Psalm 77.19 says, Your way, God, was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were not seen on them. Right? Only God can walk on the sea. And remember, remember that we talked about this a couple weeks ago. The sea represented to, to ancient cultures, right? They, they just feared the sea, right? It was the representation of, of the forces of chaos and darkness and evil, right? They had these tiny little ships. They were at the mercy of the waves and of the storm. And, and so they, they, they just greatly feared the sea. And so here then is, is Jesus Christ come submitting the sea, putting it under his feet and walking on it with great symbolic 
meaning. Right? The, 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 these guys would have known their Old Testaments. They would have picked up on what Jesus was signifying here. He's saying, I have dominion and control over this. And, and he walks on the water as only one who, who created the water and has control over the water could do. So he is practically shouting to them in the midst of their trial that he is God and that he is in control of, of the forces of, of darkness and chaos represented by the sea. Right? But there's, there's a second thing that Mark does with the story to show us um, that Jesus is God. Though, though admittedly, this one is easy to miss. Right? This, one's easy to, this one's a bit easy to, to pass by. There's a little a pun I'll explain in a second. Right? Look, look at the end of verse 48 there. He, he comes to them. Right? So wait, they're in the store. Right? They need help. So we've seen that Jesus is specifically coming to help them. But then what does it say? It says, he meant to pass them by. Now, what in the world does that mean? Right? I've always just kind of skipped over this. Like, well, I don't know what that means. I'm just going to skip it. Um, but no, there's, again, there's, there's significance to these words. Was Jesus just trying to kind of like, I don't want to deal with these issues. I'm just going to kind of sneak around them a little bit and, and hope that they don't see me. I'm just going to pass by so I don't have to deal with, with my annoying disciples. Right? No, obviously not. And again, understanding the Old Testament is, is key to understanding Mark's words here. In the Old Testament, the phrase passed by is just charged with meaning. And it is used on multiple occasions to refer to a special revelation of God to his people. Right? We see it the first time in, in, um, with Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 22. Remember Moses, he's up on the mountain. Right? God is, is giving Moses the law that Moses will then go down and, and deliver to the people. And in the midst of all this, Moses asks God to show him his glory, to, to reveal himself to Moses. And God, God tells Moses, he says, you, you cannot see my face and live. He said, a, a full revelation of my greatness and my glory and my holiness would just would destroy you. But God says, but I will give you a glimpse. And then in verse 22, it says, and he, God says to Moses, I'll give you a glimpse. And verse 22 says, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. And we see this happen a number of times in the Old Testament. It happens to Elijah, again in 1 Kings 19.11. God says to Elijah, go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by Elijah. Right? God's not trying to sneak by and get by Elijah. No, it is, this means that God revealed something of his person, something of his glory and his greatness to Elijah. And again, in, in Job chapter 9 through 11, it talks about God passing Job by. Right? God's not trying to sneak by and get away and not be seen. No, God passing by specifically means that God is, is revealing himself to his people. When, when he does that, he's giving them a special glimpse, just a little, a taste of his glory and his identity. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing here on the water. He's not trying to get around them. He is trying to pass them by. He specifically intends for his disciples to see his greatness and his glory and his divinity. Right, so he is once again patiently revealing himself to his disciples because they just still aren't getting it. But he's not done yet. All right, the disciples, well, look what happens. They, they see him coming. They still just don't get it. So they, they kind of freak out. Right? They, they, they look. They see. 
Well, there's something happening out there. I don't know what it is. Uh-oh. It, it's probably a ghost. And so they just cry out, terrified, like they're in watching a horror movie or something. They, they just scream. They're, they're scared. But look at what Jesus does in verse 50. He, he, he reassures them. He, he calls out to them. But, but don't miss the significance of what he says. We, we gloss over this too. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Yes, that is extremely comforting. But it is so much more than that. It is revelatory as well. In the Greek, remember, all right, our Bibles are in English. They're translations of the Greek, right? What, what the New Testament was originally written in. In the Greek, that, that middle part there that says, it is I, you see that? That is a translation of two Greek words, ego, I me. Ego, I me. And I'm not sure why practically every version translate this, translates it this way. Because every other time Jesus says, Ego, I me, it is translated, I am. Right? The most literal translation of this verse would be, Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Right, well, that sounds a little weird, doesn't it? That, that's terrible grammar. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Why? What, is Jesus just skip English class? No. No, because again, Jesus here is explicitly claiming to be God. Alright, the phrase, I am, ego I me, comes straight from God's revelation of himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14. God says, I am who I am. Which the rest of the Old Testament renders as God's personal name, Yahweh. Right? Yahweh in Hebrew means I am. In, in the... Uh, when did I mention this? There's, all right, there's a thing called the Septuagint. All right, so remember, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, right, to the Jewish people. Right, well, you know, Rome starts, the Greek starts to spread, Rome starts to take over, and a lot of the Jews and the people in Israel start to speak Greek. Right, so kind of before Jesus there a little bit, they, they translate the Hebrew scriptures and they translate them into the Greek because that's what people were reading more, and that's called the Septuagint. But in the Septuagint, right, when they take this passage out of Exodus 3, God's revelation of himself as Yahweh, they translate God's personal name, Yahweh, as Ego I Me. Right? And now here is Jesus walking on water, passing them by, and declaring himself to be the great I Am, taking God's personal name for himself. And he does this repeatedly in the Gospel of John. Right, the most famous of which is in John 8.58. Remember the, the Pharisees, the Jews, they've surrounded Jesus. They're, they're challenging him. And Jesus says this to them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, terrible grammar, Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. Before Abraham was, I was. That would make sense. But he knows it's before Abraham was, I am. And we miss what he's saying here. But the Jews that were listening to Jesus did not miss it. Because the very next verse says, So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They knew that by, by calling himself this, Jesus was claiming to be God. So they tried to stone him because stoning was the, was the punishment for blasphemy. Jesus claims God's personal name for himself. It would, be, it would be like me going and standing on a corner in Times Square and declaring that my name is Barack Hussein Obama. I just be like, guys, by the way, I'm Barack Hussein Obama. And that would obviously be crazy, right? Unless I actually somehow was Barack Hussein Obama. And I started doing all of these things that only Obama could do. 
Obviously, I cannot do that because I'm not him, but that is exactly what Jesus does. He calls himself Yahweh. He takes God's personal name and then he backs it up by doing all of these things that only God can do. And the last of those we see in Mark's summary in verses 53 through 56. Mark has a number of these kind of short little summary passages that explain kind of a big period of time, something that Jesus was doing. And so in that one, we see the fourth way in which Jesus reveals himself in our story is that he apparently is once again healing an almost entire region of all of their sickness and disability. Jesus heals, he forgives sins, he casts out demons, he has authority over nature, he calms storms and walks on water, he passes by, he claims God's personal name for himself. Jesus is continuously revealing himself to be God in the flesh. And he does so here, as he often does for us, in the midst of a storm that he had specifically sent them into. It is in the midst of our hardships and our sufferings and our trials that Jesus comes to us and shouts to us and reveals himself to us. Are you paying attention to what Jesus may be trying to show you? So that's finally the end of Mark chapter 6. Jesus sends us into trials. He comes to us in those trials and he reveals himself to us through those trials. He is so patient with his slow, stubborn disciples and he is so patient with us. He pursues us. He reveals himself to us through his word and he ultimately reveals himself to us through the cross. The, The great reformer 400 years ago, Martin Luther, he once said that He said, Christians cannot suffer with Christ. In other words, Christians cannot suffer like Christ, right? We cannot successfully imitate his patience and love in the midst of trial, right? Christians cannot suffer with Christ before they have embraced the full benefits of Christ's suffering for them in their place. He is saying that we cannot face suffering and difficulty like Christ with patience and hope until we first understand that he suffered for us. You are not going to understand anything about Jesus until you understand the cross, until you understand the gospel, until you understand his redemptive suffering in your place, until you understand that one word that is so important, substitution. And this is part of the reason why the disciples don't get it yet. And this is why many of you don't get it yet. This is why Jesus' divinity is veiled throughout much of of his ministry in the book of Mark. This is why he commands the demons to be silent when they try to reveal who he is. Because we cannot rightly understand the person and the work of Jesus Christ until the cross. Because it is at the cross, it is the cross, that is Jesus' revelation of God. It is there that, that his revelation of God is made complete. So in passing them by here, Jesus is giving them a taste. He's he's patiently revealing himself again to his stubborn disciples. He's doing the same thing for us because we do not get it. And if we have gotten it, we are so prone to forget it. But it all comes back to the cross. Do you understand the cross? If I came to you and said, what was the point of the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Would you be able to give me an answer? If you, if you do understand it, do you delight in the cross? It seems counterintuitive. The most bloody, evil act in all of history should bring us great joy and gratitude and thankfulness because of why he was on that cross. 
It is because of the cross that you can know that God is absolutely for you. Right? He, he didn't hold back anything. Right? He sent his son to the cross. And it is because of the resurrection after the cross that you can know that everything will be alright in the end. That God is in control. If, if he was in control, even in the most uncontrollable, evil-looking time in history, the cross, you can know that he can be in control of whatever it is you are going through right now. God reveals himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, God in flesh. And Jesus most fully reveals himself to us at the cross, where we see God's great justice and his mercy meet. First, first John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Do you know this love? Right? Have you met and understood this Jesus that sacrificially substitutes himself in our place and takes on our death and gives us his life? Who takes on our slavery and gives us his freedom? Who takes on our sin and gives us his righteousness? Who takes on our rejection and separation and gives us his perfect relationship with the Father? How much more evidence do you need? Right? Mark has been making his case extensively now for six chapters that this Jesus is God. He is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And it is this Jesus that is the only hope for any peace, meaning, fulfillment, and life. Have you repented and believed? Have you followed this man? Does your life reflect that? Right? Because when God's grace gets a hold of our hearts, it always demonstrates itself in some way. There is always evidence. There is always a change. Do you know this man? And I, I promise you, listen, he is so worth it. And he is so trustworthy. He is the only person who can actually fulfill us. He is the only person who will ever not disappoint us. So let's, let's turn to him in prayer as, as we close. Father, again, we come confessing our sin and our helplessness and our great need. Father, we cry out that, that, we, that we have rejected you, we have abandoned you, we have fled the other direction away from you. Father, we are so slow to get it. Uh, we are so resistant to, to submitting to your will and to your lordship and, and to what you have, have done for us. So, Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your perfect plan of salvation, for, for coming yourself, for sending your son Jesus to take on flesh and to stand in our place and to pay the penalty that we deserved. So, Father, we thank you that there is great life and, and fulfillment and, and meaning in, in the cross. We thank you for your great love displayed to us um, on that tree. We thank you for, for being both just and merciful, for justly punishing your, your son in our place so that you could have great mercy on us. So, Father, we just we ask right now that you would work in our hearts, that you would show us Jesus Christ even so much more clearly than, than we've seen him before, that you would reveal to us his divinity and, and, and his love and his mercy and his glory and his power, and that we, you would lead us and grant us um, faith and repentance. Father, change our hearts. Draw us closer to your Son. Make us more like your Son um, this morning. We pray that you would get all the glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.